Many investors rely on ESG funds and ESG ratings as a filter to avoid investments in companies engaged in human rights violations, environmental disasters, and other destructive behavior. But are ESG ratings and funds properly executing on their promise? Well, Mark Newman, creator of the ESG Orphans ETF, joins me right after this. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Stephanie Stanton. It is great to have you with us. Be sure to subscribe to ETF Guide TV and post your thoughts in our YouTube comment section below. All right. While many investors rely on ESG funds and ESG ratings to screen out companies that are engaged in damaging behavior to the globe and to people, some of these ESG filters, as you're about to find out, have serious shortcomings And in many cases, they are a very poor tool for investors who seek a positive global impact while minimizing ESG risks. Well, today we are joined by Mark Newman, founder and CIO of Constrained Capital, which is the creator of the ESG Orphans ETF, that ticker ORFN. Mark, it is so great to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Okay, let's start out. First, familiarize us with ESG investing. What is it supposed to do and what are some of the problems with ESG investing as you see it? ESG stands for environmental, social and governance, and it relates to the investment process, which is supposed to help investors steward money towards good companies and good actors in the investment space. But the truth is that over time, it's revealed major shortcomings. These include failed objectives, higher fees, middling returns, and the worst scenario of all for me is the uh, exacerbated risks that it has caused. Now, the truth is that Wall Street goes through these cycles every so often. A while back, there was the junk bonds and Michael Milken, the mortgage bonds and Louis Ranieri, and most recently, and the great parallel I make is the collateralized debt obligations and the global financial crisis, where rating agencies were captured and the Wall Street firms benefited while the risks were uh, put on the investors and society. And we saw that with the unwind during the great financial crisis. Now, for me, as a CFA charter holder, my fiduciary moral compass sort of went a little crazy as this ESG bubble exploded. And that, you know, that encompassed with massive investor risk really caused me to, you know, discover this idea and this product that I've created. Yeah, and we'll dive into that. But, you know, your um, sentiment uh, is, you know, shared by some pretty big names. We had Elon Musk calling ESG a scam. Of course, there is that big backlash. So uh, let's talk about the idea behind your company, Constrained Capital, and the ESG orphans, as you call it. Sure. The idea for Constrained Capital really came to me when I read a piece by a, a hedge fund luminary by the name of Cliff Asnes. He wrote a piece called Virtue is Its Own Reward. One man's ceiling is another man's floor. And in it, he talked about industries under capital constraints, excluded, the sin stocks, so to speak, and how they provide higher expected returns because they've been so excluded. And for me, I looked at tobacco stocks, and Cliff Asnes actually mentioned tobacco in his piece, and I looked over a 25-year period to find a few cycles where constraints may have been on and then off and then on again and to see how that affected returns. And the truth is, sure enough, between late 98, 1998, when the tobacco master litigation came out, there was a couple-year period there where the pension funds, CalPERS and others, 
were putting constraints on capital on the tobacco space. They were divesting. And in that period from late 1998 to early 2000, tobacco, Altria was what I used to represent it, was outperformed by the S&P. The S&P beat Altria by about 45%. And then in early 00, excuse me, late 00, when CalPERS and others had divested, had removed the capital constraints, Altria MO went on a tear for about 17 years where it outperformed the S&P by 630%, about 12, almost 11.5% a year. And that was where the constraints were off. And then again in 2017, and this is where the ESG bubble really exploded, that's where the S&P started to gainfully outperform Altria. And in that five-year period between 2017 and 21, the uh, S&P outperformed Altria by 130%. So that was a period sort of where constraints were back on. And in the end, I looked at ESG and dug into this, and that's where I uncovered the exclusions and the opportunity as a result of capital constraints. And that's how I named my firm and then created the ESG orphans on the back of that. Yeah. But, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, ESG, it sounds great in theory. I mean, everyone wants responsible companies, responsible investing. But on that note, let's dive a little bit deeper into ORFN, which is your ticker. How does this fund work and what makes it different? And are you completely anti-ESG with all of your holdings or are there a few in there? So the ORFN is a rules-based passive index. Well, the ETF follows the ESG Orphans Index and it is basically isolating the entire ESG exclusions. So it's anti-ESG as far as investing goes. There's a strong difference, obviously, between living ESG and investing in ESG. Those two are not quite parallel. Um, but in this case, my ETF is a broad-based ESG exclusions index. So it sort of isolates it. I liken it to the QQQ and technology in 2000, the VXX and volatility in 2010, and now the ORFN, ORFN and ESG in 2022. And in the end, it's set to capitalize on a changing of the ESG guard, an unwind of the ESG bubble that we've seen. And in the end, the index and the ETF itself is a value, defensive, dividend-paying, uh, real goods-producing uh, companies-based ETF. So there is a strong value proposition to the basket, but it is also isolating the ESG factor as the anti-ESG investment thesis. Okay. On that note, then, um, can you give us a sneak peek into some of your holdings? And would a conscious investor be able to sort of dip their toe into this fund? So um, the basket consists of the largest market caps in each sector. So fossil fuel is the Exxon Mobiles and Chevrons, for example, and nuclear is Nextera and Duke and Dominion, and the weapons is Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, alcohol is Budweiser and Diageo, tobacco is Philip Morris and Altria, and the gambling space is Las Vegas Sands and Caesars. And the truth is, I think that this basket fits a few profiles. First, I'll give an anecdote. I spoke to uh, an analyst in Europe via Twitter, actually, a couple months ago, and they said, Mark, I have an ESG analyst job. Do you want it? And I sort of laughed and I said, no, thank you. But if your job, if your career risk is so uh, strictly tied to ESG, 
this is the kind of product that could offset that career risk. In other words, if ESG turns out to fail or flop or reverse from here, that person who has that job that may suffer because ESG is slowing down or backtracking, they will benefit likely from the ex-ESG basket, the orphans. But the reality is this product, because of its value nature, its you know defensive type nature, it provides a barbell strategy for certain investors, for certain profiles. You know, I liken it to if your investment portfolio has been heavily infected with ESG, this is sort of an immunization against ESG because the reality is ESG portfolios are laden with tech stocks and healthcare stocks. And if you are heavily exposed to that space, then you might want an offset into the under-owned, the under-invested areas, which are clearly these ESG orphans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously you're going all in on anti-ESG. Um, in your opinion, has ESG met its day of reckoning? Um, are we going to come back to center and maybe have a little bit more balance? So I would say that ESG heretofore, ESG as we have known it, has to change. It must change. The societal issues, the energy and food insecurity is just too great now. It's almost like ESG for a while was a bit of a luxury. I think that the change we're going to see is not a two-dimensional change. I think it's three-dimensional. It's going to a little bit from here, a little bit from there. I mean, maybe weapons become socially acceptable because they're a pacifier. There's a lot of directions it can go. And the political winds are shifting enough that people are a little bit tired of altruism and they really want to maximize returns in high expected return securities. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your insights on the obstacles facing ESG investors and how the ESG Orphans ETF is built to overcome them. And you know, this is such an important topic that I am pleased to announce a brand new episode series with Mark Newman titled Truth in ESG, the story of ESG Orphans. If you enjoyed seeing Mark uncover the big league problems with ESG funds and ratings, be sure to check out his upcoming original series right here on ETF Guide TV. All right, before we leave, Mark, tell us about the agenda for your first episode of Truth in ESG. What can we expect? Sure. So energy insecurity and global macro risk around energy is, is massive right now. And uh, the importance of fossil fuel and nuclear energy going forward is paramount. And I think that everyone will be pretty excited to know that renowned energy expert Dr. Anas Alhaji is going to be my special guest for episode one as we talk about the importance of energy and how ESG has misplaced some hope in energy on its way forward. And we'll get a great insight from, from Dr. Alhaji in episode one. All right. Sounds great. We are definitely looking forward to it. Thanks again to you, Mark. And again, you can tune into Truth in ESG right here on ETF Guide TV. A big thanks to Mark for joining us, and we will see you on the next episode. I'm Stephanie Stanton. Don't forget to subscribe to ETF Guide TV. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.